Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, Daria, you have to see this. A strutting peacock just entered our yard. Solomonida stood on tiptoe, leaning forward, until I worried she might tumble right through the open window in her eagerness. The late morning sunlight glinted off her jeweled headdress and found an answering glow in the wisps of blonde braid that had worked their way out from under the rim as she sewed. Peacock? I stared at her inside. It wasn't fair. My older sister was lovely, even at 31. Not just beautiful either, but vivid and charming, outgoing, outspoken, eager to interact with life beyond our courtyard gates. Next to her, I felt like the quiet mouse she teasingly called me. How would a peacock get into our yard? This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to C.P. Leslie, whose novel, Song of the Sisters, was just released by Five Directions Press. This is the third in the Songs of Steppe and Forest series, following Song of the Siren, about a beautiful but scarred woman who's sent by the Queen of Poland to spy on the royal court in Moscow. And Song of the Shaman, about a widowed servant who becomes the shaman to a powerful Tatar tribe. In book number three, also set in the mid-16th century, we re-meet characters from the previous two books of the series and are introduced to the Sharametava sisters, whose father died without leaving a clear will. When an unpleasant second cousin appears to have been their father's designated heir, their entire way of life is threatened, and the two sisters rely on each other to survive the ordeal. Hi, Carolyn. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Thank you for having me. So I have loved every one of the books in Songs of Step and Forest. How did you come to write the series? It's about life in 16th century Russia. Makes me want some caviar right now. <laughs> Well, it's an outgrowth of my first Russian series, uh, Legends of the Five Directions, and that morphed into a family saga. So when I started it, I had one set of plans, and I was going to feature all these different women, a different woman in each book. But then as I was writing, I realized that it really needed to focus in on um, Nassan, who is the heroine of that series, and her immediate family. So all of the books, uh, in one way or another, feature either her or one of her two half-brothers, or her real brother and her half-brother. And that left me, as I got to the end, with um, these stories that I had always wanted to tell and didn't have space for. And it's called Legends of the Five Directions. So I thought if I put, you know, extended it to nine books, librarians and booksellers would be going crazy. (laughs) So I decided to start a new series. And um, each female um, secondary character that I had wanted to turn into a main character would be the heroine of her own book. And as I was writing the first one with uh, Juliana, I realized because she was such a 
button-down um, calculating character, I was going to have to make it a first-person story because the only way she could become sympathetic was if you saw what she was experiencing from inside her own head rather than what she said to everybody else. So I decided that that would be a characteristic also of the series. And then the other thing was that I wanted to feature a wider range of women's experiences, both in terms of social class, because all of the main characters in Legends are uh, upper class, and in terms of uh, how, what their choices were. You know, even the most restrictive society has outs for people who don't conform for whatever reason. And so even though the standard in that time period was to have arranged marriages, there were other things that you could do, uh, other ways of becoming a self-realized woman. And so that's another feature of these stories is that I, I, I look at other things. And um, at first, I was only planning to uh, talk about Grusha, Daria, and Solomonida, and I imagined a trilogy, but then I became interested in Juliana and decided to feature her because her story was the most dramatic. And also Liuba, uh, who is a, a much younger character, um, but she is very um, story worthy. And uh, then there were a couple of others uh, who came in as I was writing the early books. So I decided to make the whole thing more open-ended. I'm currently imagining maybe seven books, but I'm open to characters popping up and say, no, no, I have a story too. Well, I started thinking it would be a movie, but now that I know that there's going to be seven, I'm thinking they're going to have to do um, a kind of a series, a television series <laughs> of, of all these women. We talked about the first book in the series, Song of the Siren, when it came out in 2019. And of course, interested listeners can hear that on the New Books Network. But Song of the Sisters is the third book that I just finished. What can you tell us about the second Song of the Shaman? Well, first off, I would love it if, uh, you know, Netflix would pick it up, right? I mean, you could cast every Asian uh, actor in Hollywood in these books one way or the other. <laughs> so you'd have a diversity angle, you've got the feminist angle and the romantic angle and all the rest of it. But, you know, we can dream, right? So as for Song of the Shaman, uh, it features Grusha, who was the only point of view character in the earlier series who was lower class. Uh, she was a servant uh, in the first book, and uh, she was in love with the hero, and it didn't work out because he married someone else. But by the end of the Legend series, she had become a single mother living in a step horde, and she was training to become a shaman. So in the first couple of chapters in this new book, her mentor dies. And so she is suddenly thrust into the position of being the only person who can uh, take responsibility for the spiritual life of the people who took her in when she needed help. Now, spiritual life is, uh, that's a little bit misleading because the horde is nominally Muslim. And so there is an imam in the horde who takes care of the spiritual life of the Muslims. But as was quite characteristic of step hordes in this period, there are still a lot of people who believe in uh, pagan beliefs, and Grusha represents that part of their religious experience. So her fundamental conflict is really typical for women even today. It's, you know, who comes first, herself or her family? And because it's the 16th century, she sees that as a conflict between 
the spirits and her son, who is now six years old, and he has no memory of his Russian heritage, except the little that she's managed to teach him. He's um, on the brink of entering the man's world of herding and war, and he doesn't have a father to look after his education. And although these days, you know, you could have two fathers or two mothers, in the 16th century, it was um, a much more segregated world by sex. And so women uh, were mostly in the house and did domestic things, uh, and men, you know, were involved in war and sort of outside things. And so women didn't have the skills a boy would need and vice versa. So because this is a novel, her conflict is represented by two potential husbands. There's a Russian, uh, Anfim Fadiev, who we'll talk about later, who has all of the traits that she was raised to value in a man. He's self-supporting and he is uh, reasonably good looking and he's uh, reasonably young. and he's interested in her. But his one flaw, as far as she's concerned, is that he insists that she can't be a shaman if she marries him. He's willing to take her back to Russia. He's willing to support her son. But he is not willing to tolerate what he refers to as her sorcery, which he assumes, because he's a good Orthodox Christian, means that she's going straight to hell. And then the second candidate is a Tatar who... Uh, can accept her for who she is and is very supportive and um, very uh, loving with her son and is perfectly able to teach him all the things he needs to know. But he has prior obligations that pull him away from her. And she's when he leaves, she's literally not sure that she'll ever see him again because, you know, it's a time when they don't have, they certainly don't have cell phones. They, people don't even write letters for the most part. And so she has to decide whether she's going to commit to either one of them or whether she's going to stand alone and whether she's going to remain true to her religious vocation as a shaman or whether she's going to compromise for the sake of her kid. And she's interesting because unlike most women of the period, she does have a profession of being a shaman. So she could conceivably support her son on her own. And she does, in fact, yes. Um, She doesn't charge fees, but people give her things in gratitude for when she performs rituals for them. And because she's an important figure inside the horde, she, you know, if she is ever in need, she can go to the Khan and ask for help. So, yeah, she does support herself, which is, as you say, very unusual in that period. Um, Carolyn, each of the books tells the story of one woman reacting to the customs and requirements of her time and place. I I think I'm going to say, I'm going to come right out and say, I think my favorite was Juliana because she's such a tough cookie. Which one of them was the most fun for you to write? Whichever one I'm working on. Uh, seriously, uh, fiction writing is my favorite means of relaxation. And as soon as the story starts to flow, I fall in love with the leads and I can't wait to find out how their tale will end. I'm absolutely terrible at outlining. I never have more than the vaguest idea of where I'm heading at the end. So it's an adventure for me when I write that first draft. Uh, Song of the Sisters was a lot of fun for me. Uh, It's probably the most lighthearted of the books, whereas uh, Song of the Siren is the most dramatic, I think, because of Juliana's story and her personality. Uh, Sisters has a rather silly antagonist, and uh, the heroine plays all kinds of tricks on him as she tries to thwart his plans. 
to marry her off to one unsuitable candidate after another. Uh, but I think really my favorites of the the uh, the group so far aren't out yet. Um, Song of the Sisters, I'm sorry, Song of the Sinner is the next one, and that features Solomonida, who is the older sister in this book. And because she's older, she's middle-aged by medieval standards, she's 34 uh, during the main action of the book. She knows her own mind, and she's a very outgoing, effervescent character anyway. So given that I'm getting into the minds of these women, uh, she's a fun one because she she knows what she wants and she knows how to get it. And it's just a question of whether she's going to succeed. I've also just started the fifth book, which is called Song of the Storyteller. And that one focuses on Liuba, whom I mentioned earlier. Uh, Liuba is, um, she's a, a Russian aristocratic girl. She's 15 or 16 at the time when her story begins. And um, there are two reasons I love it. One is because of her. She's been raised in a Tatar ho- household, even though she's Russian, because her older sister, Maria, who's a big character in the whole series and in the first series, has married a Tatar. And so Lyuba has a very good education for her time. And she is bookish and she's a budding writer. And so writing her is fun because she just naturally thinks in terms of all the things that writers have to do. So when she walks into a room, you know, she thinks about what the room looks like and what she's seeing, what she's smelling and uh, what she's hearing and everyone she encounters, you know, she gives these just sort of naturally brief little vignettes of who they are and what they do. And so that makes it easy. And she's a very strong minded character also, which is something I like. I don't do so well with the passive obedient ones who don't really know where they're going. <laughs> there are not that many of them in your books. Well, they, they tend to develop, but both Grusha and Daria started out that way. And so I really had to struggle to figure out what it was that they wanted as distinct from what I thought they might want when I started the story. Um, I know your doctorate is in Russian history. Why did you choose that particular time period, 16th century, to set Songs of Steppe and Forest? Well, I set Legends of the Five Directions in the years 1534 to 38 because it was a particularly troubled period in Russian history. Um, Russian history as a as a subject is like a, an endless miniseries. I mean, it's just like one thing after another. But so to be particularly troubled is a real achievement. That uh, they had lots of family feuding, and they were jockeying for power, and people got poisoned, and people got thrown into jail and starved, and there was invasion from outside and espionage by foreign powers. And this is only four years. And the female regent, who was occupying a very shaky throne, uh, while her two brothers-in-law were, you know, trying to get her thrown out so that they could take over. So all of this was great fodder for a series, and I had a lot of fun bringing the messiness to life. Uh, but as a result, songs of Stephen Forest had to be close enough in time for the characters to still be defining their lives in a story-worthy way. So I pushed it a little bit forward into the 1540s, which was still a pretty rocky period because by then the, um, the female regent, uh, it, in my book she's poisoned, but it turns out uh, based on some... Uh, research that I didn't discover until later, she actually was poisoned. Um, Ooh. Yeah, and not only was she poisoned, but she uh, died of a hemorrhage, uh, which the scientists attributed to her um, being pregnant. Ooh. 
<laughs> so, uh, and she hadn't been she'd been widowed for four years at that point, so that w- would have been a major scandal. But uh, anyway, uh, after she died, things got even worse because then there was no one, there was no adult ruler left, and so all the big boyar clans were fighting. And um, the future Ivan the Terrible was still in his teens when this series opens. He was 11 uh, in Song of the Siren. And by now he's just becoming close to what uh, Russians considered to be an adult at 15. Um, So more generally, the 16th century is my specialty. So I'm writing what I know. But there were specific reasons for picking the 1540s for this particular Mm -hmm. How do you decide when to include actual historical moments involving royalty or battles and and when to make them up? Well, um, in the first series, the history really drove the novels. It was in the background all the time. And I tried to make it as accurate as we know. It's not a very well-studied period, although there is this one guy in Russia who wrote a 900-page book in Russian about every single thing that happened, which is an absolute godsend for me. But uh, when I got into Songs of Steppe and Forest, I really didn't want to be too tied down by the history. So there are very few historical events. Um, there's usually one or two per book. And an example of how the history was, they're usually the most outrageous things that you can find in any one of the books. So what I do now is, um, you know, I'll be writing along and I'll think, oh, something needs to happen here, um, you know, uh, Things are too calm on the steps. Somebody needs to attack. And so then I go to the sources and see if there's anything. And if there isn't anything, I just make up something. But if there is something, then I work it in. Um, often the the um, accounts in the Chronicles are pretty vague. So it'll say, you know, in 1541, the Crimeans came up from the south and they don't get specific about when or where or who. So, um, and sometimes things, again, the most outrageous incidents which caught people's attention, they'll have an exact day and month and year and even hour. And if that happens, and I think it's important to include, then I do adjust the calendar of the um, story so that the event fix, fits in. But most of the time, I'm just looking around saying, oh, you know, I need some Tatars in here to spice things up, or I need uh, um some kind of coup or something. And then I, I, uh, I just do, you know, I take the minimum available to me and and construct something on the basis of that. Mm. I have one more question about Song of the Shaman, which is the second book. Can you, can you say a little more about Grusha's ability to communicate with uh, mystical forces, her shamanic abilities? Yes. I mean, people who are shamans now and then claim that they could travel in other worlds, right? That's what shamans do. And Grusha firmly believes that spiritual realms exist beyond this one and that she can travel to them uh, with, and when she does, uh, she believes that those journeys affect things that happen in what she refers to as the middle worlds of earth and water, which are the world that we live in. So even Grusha, because at some points in her life, she was um, a practicing Christian. She's not completely sure, but she, she does see the evidence or what she believes to be the evidence of her journeys having an effect. And so I thought that was an important element to include. And also a fun way, an interesting way to liven up the novel and 
to reveal Grusha's inner life because Grusha is a very, she's a peasant, basically. She's very focused on food and shelter and, you know, basic things that she needs to live, making sure her kid is okay and all that kind of thing. And this is this element of her that doesn't really, you know, all, all of the things that she doesn't acknowledge in everyday life come out in these journeys. So I, they're purely my invention. Uh, I don't, I know what modern day shamans say they experience, but we don't have a very good sense of how shamans experience life in the 16th century. So I made them all up. And so I decided to structure them as lucid dreams. They're more emotional than literal. And they hint at what she's going through as she becomes more comfortable with being a shaman, as she goes after it starts little children because there's a diphtheria epidemic in the camp and it's affecting all the children under six. Or uh, later when she is beginning to come and get into touch with her own uh, central unacknowledged emotional conflict, which is that her parents basically abandoned her to, they, they sent her to another household when she was 12 because she was, uh, they were facing a famine and, and they thought this was the only way that she was going to survive. And so as she does that, she goes through journeys and she, she experiences that in, for, as her internal um, life. So I deliberately avoided the question of whether or not any of this is actually happening in the normal sense of the world. She doesn't know, and I certainly don't know. But I do know that faith healing often works, um, just as giving people placebos work in medical trials, and that religious figures are part of that. Um, so that that's pretty much all I can tell you about her, her spoken mm. In Song of the Sisters, the, your newly released third book in the series, we meet Anfim, who was a prisoner of the Tatars in Song of the Shaman. So how does he then become the clerk for Cousin Igor? Okay, so yes, um, Anfim and Song of the Shaman is a Russian civil servant who is sent from Moscow with a group of envoys carrying a letter of peace to the Crimean Han. He works for what would later be called the Foreign Office um, in a kind of max. The, the Russian government was very slow to form in any kind of institutional way. And so at this point, he's technically part of the treasury, which is very confusing. But he's working basically as a diplomat. Uh, a pair of renegade princes uh, capture all of the envoys. And Agadai, who is the Khan of the horde where Grusha is living and is a major figure from the Legends novels, he's one of Nassan's brothers, he sends warriors to free the envoys uh, because he gets news from his brother in Moscow, his half-brother in Moscow, that they have been captured. Um, but the people he sends only manage to save Anfim. So uh, the horde is under attack, and Agadai forces Anfim to stay with them for a while. Uh, and as a novelist, you know, uh, that means as long as needed to, for him to fulfill his part in the story. But uh, by the end of the book, uh, Agatai releases Anfim to return to Moscow. However, when Anfim gets back, the bosses in the foreign office are pretty suspicious of how did he manage to escape when nobody else did. And so they suspect him of selling information or cutting some kind of deal with the Tatars uh, to get free. And so because they don't trust him, in effect, they lay him off. 
when he hears that Igor Bezubtsev, who is someone he's known pretty much all his life, has come to Moscow and Fim asks him for a job so he can continue to support his elderly dad who has dementia and his two kids. Um, let's talk about the sisters, Daria and Solomonina. You can say it better. <laughs> Tell us. Okay, so at the very beginning of the book, uh, Daria and Solomonita, who are actually half-sisters, um, they have the same father but different mothers. They, uh, their father has died. I mentioned he had dementia. He'd had a very long illness, uh, and, uh, but he eventually he does pass away, and they are living in his house, uh, which is where they both grew up. Uh, Dad always told them that he was going to leave everything to them, uh, which you could do in Russia. Uh, Russian women could own um, property. They, you know, it wasn't quite the same situation as uh, it was in the medieval West, um, although it wasn't common for them to own landed property. But in any case, they believe that the estate has been left to them. And he did mention finding someone to help them run the estate. Uh, but as the story opens, they get an unannounced visit from their second cousin, Igor, who announces that he has inherited the property and he's planning to move in. And he has a written will, uh, which Anfim recites from memory, but um, an accident means that the actual document is doused in ink and only the part that uh, gives um, the movable property, the furniture and the china and the actually the servants, because servants in... Uh, 16th century Russia were all slaves, although I don't call them that because it's very different from uh, the situation in the U.S. South, which people are you know, familiar with, or even serfdom later. They're, these are all domestic servants who belong to the household. Um, and But there's a part that apparently says, or that Anfim and Igor insist says, that um, the, la- the land itself and the house itself have gone to Igor. And the sisters and their chaplain can't find the original copy of the will. So Igor's claim depends entirely on his assertion and and Anfim's memory. And in addition to that, um, the cousins take an immediate dislike to each other. So they're not inclined to to make a deal. Uh, Daria and Solomonita are hell-bent on proving that Igor's a fraud, uh, not least because he states right away that he plans to advance his own career by choosing husbands for Daria and for Solomonita's daughter by her first marriage, Anna, and then force Solomonita into a convent where she has no interest in going because she's very social. So the hunt for the original will is on, and before long, another contender for the property arrives to add to the fun. Uh, it was just filled with rich stories and intrigue, palace intrigue. It was, I loved it. I loved this last one, but I loved all of them. What are you working on next? I know you always have several books up your sleeve. Well, Song of the Sinner is on its third draft. uh, So I'm feeding it to my writers group, two chapters at a time, and then revising it in response to their comments. And when they get all the way through, they're about halfway through now. Um, I'll set it aside for a little while because, you know, that's always a good thing to do with a novel. And then I'll go through it from beginning to end and really overhaul it to make one last time. And uh, while I'm waiting for them to finish, I started working on the next book, uh, Song of the Storyteller, uh, which is in the very early stages. And I know that's going to be an absolute blast to write because the central event, and this is historical, 
is uh, the bride show for Ivan the Terrible, who is um, now 16. And he's about to be crowned czar and uh, their very first Russian czar. And uh, he there's a, a call is sent out throughout the land for all the eligible virgins uh, to present themselves in Moscow. And um, uh, Lyuba and her friend Anna, who is Solomonita's daughter, are both uh, not in the least bit interested in marrying Ivan the Terrible, but they're her father and, uh, of course, cousin Igor would like to see that happen. And so they uh, have to find a way to get what they want without... Uh, offending either the czar or uh, their male relatives. So when is it going to come out? Uh, I'm not quite sure because it depends in part on uh, the, um, you know, what else the, I, I write, I publish as part of this co-op, the five directions press. And so it depends on which other writers in the co-op have books because it's not only my press. So, uh, Song of the Sisters just came out. Uh, it's possible that Song of the Sinner will come out maybe next fall, and uh, um, Song of the Storyteller probably sometime next year. I will look forward to them because uh, once I finish one of your books, I I always have a little a shot of vodka first of all, and then I start dreaming of Rachmaninoff for some reason. So thank you. Well, thank it's you. It's been lovely talking to you, Carolyn. Good luck. Well, thank you. It's so nice of you to say that. And uh, thank you for, you know, having me on your show. I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is J.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author and New Book Network host for New Books in Historical Fiction, C.P. Leslie about the latest book in her Songs of Steppe and Forest series, Song of the Sisters. Hope all of you listeners are able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.